Welcome to No Hype, the podcast about truth, science, and the future of marketing. Brought to you by your hosts, Allison Dietz and Brett House. Today on the podcast, we have Brian Dumphy, a seasoned expert with over 20 years of experience across consumer packaged goods and mobile and digital media. Brian works for Catalina, who helps tons of companies like RX Bar and others understand and reach their shoppers effectively. He joins us today to chat about our mutual love of CPG and some of the emerging trends for this industry. Not to mention, along with Brett, a mutual love of all things punk, hard rock, and heavy metal. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Allison. Really great to be here. And Brett. Before we dive in, we'd love to learn more about your journey from your early days at PricewaterhouseCoopers and Qualcomm to your most recent experience at Verb, Gimbal, and, and Catalina. How did each of those experiences lead you to where you are today? Thanks, Allison. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, my journey is not your, your the, the traditional way uh, for uh, getting into CPG marketing. I actually started my career in public accounting as an auditor with PwC. Qualcomm happened to be one of my clients at the time. Uh, turns out I'm not really an accountant, uh, but it was a great stepping stone. So they recruited me in, uh, to join them in 2000. There I spent about 14 years leading business development and ecosystem partnership development, including the Brew Mobile ecosystem, which was one of the first uh, global mobile app stores before Apple and Google entered the space. And, I also then ended up leading the uh, business development at Qualcomm Labs, which was incubating several new businesses, including uh, uh, focused on IoT, content distribution, and actually the formation of uh, Qualcomm Retail Solutions. At that point, we spun Gimbal out, which we had incubated inside of Qualcomm Labs, and I was one of the co-founders of, of Gimbal. And, and Gimbal was an early pioneer of geotargeting Bluetooth proximity beacons, I helped get Gimbal acquired and, and then joined uh, Verve Mobile um, in, uh, in the 2017 timeframe. And Verve was focused on location-based advertising. And that brought me up a level in understanding how programmatic advertising worked and the intricacies of running an ad network. This, uh, this eventually led me to Catalina. Uh, Kevin Hunter, he's our chief operating officer. He was one of uh, my co-founders uh, at Gimbal, uh, and he had joined Catalina the year before. And was helping the company develop a transformation strategy for transitioning the company into an omni-channel CPG marketing company offering managed, programmatic, and data services. That is an interesting uh, winding path to the CPG industry, which I guess Catalina technically isn't a CPG company, but you service the CPG industry largely. What do you find most interesting about solving problems for um, CPG marketers? What attracted you to the industry uh, the most? What excites me about CPG is really the breadth and depth of, of data and, and sales volume is, is, is just staggering. CPG products touch everyone in our daily lives. But as we walk down the aisle in, in our local grocery store, there are thousands of products trying to get our attention to bring home. Since 1975, the average grocery chain has increased its CPG in-store product assortment mix from 9,000 products to nearly 50,000 different SKUs that are available. That's a lot of products vying for, for, for shoppers' attention. And, and, and CPG brand marketers, they invest a lot of money in understanding who their shoppers are and how to position their, their products to capture attention. However, today's consumer has so many choices in how they consume content and discover and purchase products and, and how they react or, or ignore advertising. That's what eventually drove me to want to work at Catalina because their access to real-time purchase data was unique. 
Yeah, and, is, and isn't that one of the challenges that CPG brands have had over the last couple of decades, especially as we've gotten more involved in data-driven marketing and analytics, is a dearth of data, right? Because you, men, you mentioned that they've that there's this access to a ton of data, but they're, in a sense, being disintermediated by the retail players, right? The big retail players that control the point of sale and the walled gardens and premium publishers that control the audiences. And CPG sort of left in the middle not being able to connect the dots between media and actual purchases. I mean, how do you think uh, uh, CPGs now are thinking about um, data and how they kind of cover up on some of those gaps? It's, it's about collaboration. It's about data enrichment. So I think what, what CPGers are doing is they're, they're, they're going through their mix of what do they know about their consumers and in, in, in direct consumer activities they've done, as well as now – uh, sourcing panel-based data, uh, purchase data, location data, sentiment data, and you're, you're seeing a rise of data collaboration environments through clean, clean room type environments where CPGers are, are, are working across the ecosystem to, to try to make sense of that data because you know, it, it requires sophistication in platforms, sophistication in data science, sophistication in staying abreast of, of the privacy landscape, right? And the challenges that, that go along with, uh, with, with trying to provide targeted um, marketing and engagement while still doing it in, a, in, a, in an anonymized uh, privacy compliant way. So uh, you've mentioned consumer a few times. I feel like, you know, CPG-ers, CPG people have their own language. Um, it's almost like a secret handshake that says, hey, I, I know CPG. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in this space. And, and now, obviously, I work with a lot of other industries as well. Um, and I find that there's, you know, three terms that oftentimes people outside of CPG might use interchangeably, but they really have a specific meaning within the, the walls of the CPG space. So, you know, those terms, I would say, are customer, consumer, and shopper. Can you sort of break down those terms for our listeners? I view myself more of a, of a mobile tech guy who's lucky enough to be in the company of CPGers and data scientists. Catalina has a, has a rich history of being steeped in, in the CPG industry and helping brand marketers understand who, who are the shoppers that buy their products and the underlying consumers in the house who are, who are the ones that are actually consuming those products. The shopper is not always the consumer of the product. We, we tend to look at, at CPG buying at the household level and that the shopper could be a parent, a grandparent, or, or even a grocery delivery service. What we focus on is understanding the household at an anonymized level while seeking to understand the, this, why certain products are being consumed by the household and what may be the key driver for that purchase decision. We also seek to understand how to best engage those shoppers and consumers and what type of tactics and incentives they're most likely to react to positively for for trying new products, buying more quantities of a product, or recapturing brand loyalty from, from last buyer. But at the end of the day, it's really trying to get to the science of why people are buying particular products that we're trying to solve and help marketers understand. You're talking about the why people buy. Um, I, I, you know, spent a lot of time in this why people buy space in my career. Um, and I, you know, really think part of the reason why a lot of people are attracted to CPG is because it's sort of credited as being the godfather of advertising and the godfather of, you know, marketing research as well. You know, P&G in particular is known for creating that soap opera. So, you know, they, so that they could con 
communicate with their shopper, who at the time was the stay-at-home mom, you know, every day via her television. Um, but today, you know, when you think about the way the world is, is moving and according to eMarketer data, you know, we see digital marketing for CPG is expected to hit $36 billion in 2022. So, you know, who is today's CPG shopper? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting history, right? The soap opera started in the, in the 1930s on, our, on radio as a powerful medium for capturing the household shopper's attention to CPG household products, such as uh, soap, then gained momentum in TV advertising in 1949. TV, though, remained the dominant medium for CPG advertisers up until the last decade. But, but as smart devices and streaming services became mainstream, content consumption and CPG advertisers needed to shift their, their marketing spend and mix across different channels. And in addition, today's shoppers and consumers are much more complex in, in their lifestyle choices, habits, and, and, uh, and product interests. You know, brand loyalty is no longer guaranteed by advertising on the programs that people watch on TV. So today's CPG brand marketers need to focus on a multitude of different signals to understand consumer interests along that path to purchase. Just focusing on household demographic data to target consumers won't hit the mark today. Clearly, the industry's seen a lot of disruption. I mean, there's the data disruption that you just talked about, the media disruption, uh, devices, uh, et cetera. Uh, one of the other areas that I think is it's massively disrupting for the industry is, is D2C. You know, you've, I'm a big Dollar Shave Club user. You've got Coke uh, wrestling with, with companies like LaCroix, Tyson was thrown for a loop with innovations from um, companies like Beyond Meat. You know, not to mention the growth of another area that I'm very interested in is the craft beer uh, world, right? The beer industry changed radically with Sierra Nevada uh, and then this rapid movement into IPAs and sort of challenging people's assumptions about what beer tastes like. So the list goes on and on. You know, this type of disruption um, has opportunities and it also has challenges. I mean, can you talk a little bit about both the opportunities and challenges of, of, of this D2C space? Yeah, I mean, let, let's, you know, talk about, you know, the emerging brands first. You know, that's right. Consumers have so many more choices these days that, that they're much more discerning in how they choose products and shift their category and, and, and brand loyalties. Retailers have been and quick in, to start allocating shelf space to emerging products as they tap into lifestyle choices as their consumers. Like, I don't think this is necessarily going to mean the death of the big brands, but it's driving... It's driving acquisition strategies by big brands to grab onto rising emerging brands such as the craft beer industry you were hitting on, right? It's also forcing them to, to keep abreast of consumer sentiment shifts uh, to ensure their products are in line with consumer lifestyle changes and priorities, which is why we're seeing soda companies starting to now have calorie-free, non-sweet and soft drinks to combat the, the LaCroix households that are getting rid of, of all sugared sodas that, that's coming out. So. And doesn't that also give them a, uh, a data advantage? I mean, aren't they, you know, back to that concept or that notion of a data gap uh, and being disintermediated by both retail and, and, and the premium and, and walled garden publishers, doesn't the D2C sort of fill that gap, right? Because you're going direct to consumer, you're getting authenticated or first party data from consumers that are buying directly from you. Uh, and you're, and you're it's disintermediating the retailer. It, it is and it's not, right? I think direct to consumer is in a, in a, it's, it's a, heavy investment to make. And, and yes, you see a lot of brands that are, are, are moving in that in that direction, uh, home delivery service, uh, subscription-based services. But I'll tell you, we, we see data all the time. 90% of CPG products 
are still bought inside the four walls of, of a retailer. Now, what, what uh, and the retailers are getting into the mix now, too, with realizing that you've got offline and online purchase activity. So you see the increase of retail media networks now really, really starting to become a priority across these, these retailers and the investments that they're, they're looking to make. But all these folks, what they need is the, the data to help them understand what's happening at the household level, because it's shifting so fast. Once again, let's get away from just looking at a demographic-based targeting of a household. We're all different. We're all unique in the stages of life that we're in and how, how, how do we adjust to make sure that we're putting the right content, the right creative, the right message in front of that household that's going to capture that the, the, the attention of the brand attributes and, the, and, and what's most important to that consumer. So Brian, you you were talking about how the majority of purchases still happen inside the four walls of a of a store, um, but at the same time, you know, you just listed out a ton of industry trends that started out small. One trend in particular is this rise of Amazon, which has got a lot of people reeling in the CPG space. But you know, it's not just Amazon. There's also obviously the DTC space. So. You know, while it's small, like, you know, what does this mean for traditional retail and traditional grocery chains in the industry? You know, how should brands and retailers think the or rethink the shopper experience for CPG? It, it's about it's about that choice. Right. You know, the, that pan, the pandemic certainly increased the uh, acceleration of e-commerce shopping for CPG. And Amazon was definitely a beneficiary of that. But so was Walmart. Right. Walmart introduced Walmart Plus into uh, to tap into the shift in consumer purchasing. We also see the increase in home delivery platforms like Instacart and GoPuff um, have also been beneficiaries of of that CPG shopping phenomenon. But as as restrictions started to subside, consumers started getting back out. Right, you, you can't you, you you can't take away from the need for fresh. And, and the need for going in and seeing the meat, the fish, the, the, the produce that, that is there, the strategy has got to be providing choice and optionality to those consumers. Retailers, by providing uh, home delivery, click and collect uh, type solutions, but it's still going to, it's not going to take away from the fact that I got to run down the store to, to pick up the, the half and half uh, that uh, I'm out of creamer. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think it, it, it depends on the type of category of product that you're buying. Um, you know, we're actually putting out a report. Um, haven't seen all the insights yet, but it's basically a marketing mix modeling report that looks at European country trends, uh, e-commerce to retail and how that's changed over the pandemic, right, in terms of shift, you know, in places like Spain where there's a far less of a shift to e-commerce versus countries like Germany where there's a far greater shift to e-commerce. I found that my behavior has shifted uh, permanently. Uh, where I probably uh, order online 50% more than I did at any other point in my life, um, primarily started because of the pandemic, right? You know, because it was it was convenient. You didn't have to go and, and be in a store when there was a ton of uncertainty around the disease. Um, have you, has your data shown um, trends that, that are really pointing towards either on a country by country basis or in the U.S. specifically towards in, uh, like a permanent increase in e-commerce uh, in delivery purchases um, from consumers, or is it smaller than I think it might be? No, no, it's definitely an increase. And what we're seeing is certainly the one, the constant consumable products the, uh, that you're going to buy every single month, your, your detergents, right? Um, your, your, your cleaners. Um, shelf stable, shelf stable stuff. 
those shelf stable stuff, it's it's much easier to go just ship that to the house uh, because hey, cuts down on the weight of the bag that you have to carry in and out out of there. You subscribe you and save. Yeah, subscribe and save, and you don't have to worry about the fact that is 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 that product going to be on the shelf? Uh, it's it, it's going to come regularly. So we're we're certainly seeing uh, an increase there. Um, it's still not the vast majority, but it's 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 a trend that that is is important that you need you, you need to address. And you know, there's still while people are going to have the the subscriptions, brand marketers still need to get trial. Right. And, you know, just because you have that trial, um, the most important way of getting trial is still in store where you've got the opportunity to, be, to capture and discover new products that are there, a new detergent, a new hair wash. Um, so so it is it, it is important for the brand marketer now and the retailer to to look at this and, 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 and realize, yep, we can, we can capture and, and, and get a reoccurring revenue stream, uh, which which is important. But at the same time, how do you disrupt those consumers and saying that there's alternative choices here uh, that you should be you should be uh, tapping into? So you can discover that in store, you can discover that online with uh, with, with promotion. So you know all, all of this you know just adds to that complexity for for these marketers now and and how and where to reach these consumers and how to shift and change behavior. So what questions should CPG brands be asking? Like, you know, what are, what should they be thinking about to better prepare for the future? You know, there's, uh, first of all, it's, you know, who, who are, who are my brand loyals, right? Who, who's buying, who, who's buying the product? Who's, who's, who are the lapse buyers? Um, why are they buying this product? Um, what media do I need to reach these consumers at? And, and how, how do I minimize waste on, delivering impressions to households that have already bought the product, right? I think one of the challenges that, that all these marketers are having right now is the, the need for ROI. Um, you're, we're seeing it across the, the industry now that everything must be measurable. Everything must generate and, and, and prove that it's generating a return on ad spend. And, and if you can't answer the questions of who's buying my product, did I, do I need to put a promotion in front of them? Um, do I need to deliver ten impressions to their house, to the house, or can I can I minimize the frequency of impressions to the people that I know have bought and and double down on the households that haven't? Do you think that at CBG brands generally are limited in in terms of the data they have about shoppers? Back to some of the earlier questions that I had uh, in terms of delivering those insights, and I think what I want to get at with this question is is really it comes down to ROI, but what type of ROI are we talking about, right? Are we talking about incremental uh, uh, purchases being made based on uh, a specific channel or a specific tactic versus demand that was already there and all you're doing is just uh, showing them another impression, which might be unnecessary? Incrementality is is probably one of the biggest questions that we get from our brand marketers, right? Um, they're looking to grow and, and drive growth. And especially if they're delivering promotions, right? Uh, coupons and incentives to households. They, they loathe to provide an incentive to somebody that's already going to buy the product. You're wasting money there. So um, we constantly get the question of, can you tell us who the incremental new buyers were? Um, as well as the brand wells, how do we get them to buy more of that particular product um, and increase the basket size or 
expand out to the rest of the of the product portfolio and stay loyal to that brand and really kind of get a halo effect from the advertising that that's gone to a particular brand that is now uplifting other complementary brands in that brand portfolio. You mentioned brand loyalists, you mentioned, you know, new buyers, you know, there's this, there's this age old debate in the industry about how do you grow your brand? Is it through new buyers? Is it through getting existing buyers to buy more? There's so much debate about, you know, what's the right way to grow your brand. And you're almost describing a situation that requires both, but there, there are other approaches to targeting users and particularly other data sources that might add value and round out your understanding of the consumer. So, you know, how should CPG brands really think about all of the different data sources that exist and um, and versus, you know, building data sets and, and building first party data themselves? You know, can they even do that? Is that even possible? I mean, the, the, the beauty of today is that, you know, now with uh, brands can leverage disparate data sets in an anonymized privacy compliant way to build highly scaled shopper profiles to target, engage, and measure and, and, and uh, their advertising promotional campaigns. So, as I mentioned, data clean room environments really have, have, been, um, have been increasing in adoption by, by our top brand customers. Uh, and there's a variety of, of leading platforms that are, that are out there. You know, we're excited about the Meestar data marketplace and what, we can, uh, what our, our clients are going to be able to do with, um, with, the, with, with that clean room environment um, because you know, it gives them the opportunity to take their first party data sets and bring in third party data sets without exposing the PII and develop very hyper-targeted consumer segments and robust insights about that. But if, but if you get too hyper-segmented, right? I mean, P&G had this issue a while back with uh, Facebook spend uh, quite, a, quite a few years ago uh, where they had shifted a large percentage of their media to kind of hyper-targeted advertising across Facebook and then realized that the size of their pie had shrunk considerably because they were being too hyper-targeted uh, versus their traditional mass reach mechanisms, television, et cetera. It's kind of like when you try to sell a house. You bring in as many potential buyers whether or not they're going to buy or not is sort of irrelevant into the top of the funnel so that you can uh, have a bunch of competing offers. With P&G, I think the, the idea was, hey, we're losing out uh, on potential customers because we're actually doing more targeted advertising. I mean, what would you think about that and some of the, the drawbacks of hyper-targeting versus mass reach? The, the key to hyper-targeting is you need, you need more real-time signals to be able to optimize and to be able to make changes in flight. Um, I mentioned, you know, just just delivering TV ads to the household based on demographics, right? That was that was that's how they've always done it. But now, with the ability to take purchase data, location data, all the all the data sets I, I mentioned uh, a moment ago, and to be able to inform the creator, the thing about real time data in flight is it gives the it gives the marketer the ability to see what's working, what's not working, and shift. Should they change the audience? Should they expand the audience? Should they should they change out the creative element while the campaign is in flight, or should they shift their media buying, especially moving you know to, to, to digital? So you know this is this is all precision marketing. Uh, do you find that this is driving you know with this access to data, Catalina data, et cetera, uh, especially purchase in store purchase data or e commerce purchase data? Do you find that there's a shift uh, away from kind of the traditional in store incentive based you know, in caps, et cetera, uh, that uh, the industry was so reliant on. I think that, you know, one of the, the, the numbers that I heard 
uh, in the past that was 75 cents to every dollar was spent on in-store, you know, some people call it the white glove mafia, that was hardly trackable, uh, yet 25 cents was left over for the entire media buy of a CPG brand. That includes television, includes di- digital, radio, out of home, et cetera. And so everybody's fighting over this 25 cents. Do you find that there's been a shift in that industry where, where in, in CPG where, where people are leaning more towards media as opposed to the in-store experience due to DTC and e-commerce and, and enhanced data availability? It's a blend. And I'd say it was certainly shifting in that direction and the retailers saw it, right? And that's why you see the, the investment uh, by all the big retailers in, in retail media networks. And, you know, you see the expansion, too, of markets that traditionally were not, you know, part of the retail in-store experience, like at-home advertising. You see a plethora of digital display um, screens that are happening in-store and in front of store and near store that are now connecting uh, that, you know, that's that last moment of, you know, your consumers walking in the store and they see this large, you know, display unit that might be from uh, a screen order like Starlight. Um, and that captures their attention as to particular brand that's there. You can, you can, you can add product information with QR code scanning and ability to pull a promotion off that. And all of that can be connected back to what other advertising that consumer and that household has been uh, presented with. You can do retargeting because now you take, you take the, the idea of location data and you can actually say, we know these people were in front of the screen and we know they went into the store. We know they didn't buy the product. Let's go retarget these people. So I think you're seeing, you're seeing the retailers increase their properties from their websites to mobile apps, you know, tapping into out-of-home advertising, moving into programmatic as well. Uh, and you see the brands uh, expanding. I think there's always still going to be the need for national dollar spend. Uh, while, while you've got the RMNs that are going to capture a good portion of the shopping marketing dollars that are there, these brands still need to reach across the entire nation. And that's where, you know, having a, a blended strategy of, you know, focusing on your RMNs, but then making sure that every other dollar you're spending in, you know, call it 25%, call it more, um, but every single dollar now needs to be measurable and, and prove and justify that ROI because it can, because everything is connected now digitally to smart devices and, and you have all these other signals, right, to bring in smart marketers and data scientists can now connect dots and, 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 and help answer those questions that the CMOs are asking right now. So I loved your description of how the in-store experience is evolving. And I think it ties back to the concept that's become really popular, I think, in the last year or two around customer experience. Um, and I think customer experience kind of grew out of popularity in, in other industries, but I think it's still, you know, the shopper experience, the customer experience is really still very important to CPG brands. What are some ideas that you've seen that have worked really well that you think CPG brands can be doing to improve the shopper experience? And you know, how can they get closer to their customers, really, so they can provide that better experience? So I, I think it really implores the brand to start to tap back into that, that why. why. Why are the households buying particular products? And, and how can they be more useful to understanding that, that, that consumer sentiment? You know, if nutritional elements are, are what are driving the households, 
how do they bring that up and, and, and really kind of drive home the marketing as to how how keto friendly diets can still use their 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 products and ingredients into into recipes that I'm that I'm uh, cooking at home and now changing my my lifestyle towards it's tapping into usefulness on the product information um, through apps through through tapping into social influencers really f- following the content and understanding where what what interests um, these households not only on the, on the purchase activity but on the media consumption and being able to tap into that really you know as you as you take these these data signals and bring them all together it really will refine out the, the way a brand marketer can change and tell their story really it gets back to understanding their lifestyle and how your product can be useful to to their lifestyle and how it be integrated into uh, into their daily lives and, and recipes is one one example yeah, no, that's a good example. And I, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, the experience is what's going to drive the end behavior. And that's what you're really looking to do. And we know that, you know, CPG companies are under enormous pressure to deliver returns, to demonstrate growth, right? Um, I think I read in a McKinsey article recently that said 80% of CEOs in the CPG space are looking for marketing to drive that growth. Um, so how, how have you seen CPG brands leverage measurement and analytics to really prove out and justify the spend uh, across all of the channels that we've talked about? Well, I'll tell you, th- th- this is what excites me really the, the most about this Catalina Newstar partnership because collectively we, we can help these CPG advertisers measure and attribute advertising effectiveness across all these media channels by leveraging multi-path identity resolution, right? I think one of the key things is you've got to be able to anonymously link up households to devices, right? And this is where, you know, where the new star strong suit, TransUnion strong suit really bring to the table. You know, their deterministic real-time purchase data combined with all outlet shopper panel data, combined with mobile location data and engagement and sentiment data, all matched media exposure data. This is where Catalina and Newstar are able to provide CPG advertisers with, with cross-channel measurement and, and multi-touch attribution services that justify that media spend and enable the ability to optimize spend while in flight. And you know the tools are there. The the, the, the capabilities are, are there. The marketers are are, are demanding it. So it, to to me the the time is uh, has never been more perfect for this intersection of the connected world with 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 the variety of data sets with the variety of um, anonymized clean room environments to put the, this jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah, and some data scientists to figure out all the complicated math uh, to make all of this make sense from a, from a data perspective. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I really wish I would have gotten the memo about the T-shirts. I love that you both are support are supporting your favorite bands, um, and I think it's pretty funny that you guys both showed up like this. You didn't plan it, did you? No, I think I got a message from Brian. He's like, "Are we wearing our concert tees?" Yeah, I, I thought we were going to jam out. I got my guitar. I think he's got his guitar in the background. I, I thought we were going to have a have a gig. Uh, yeah, and just and just for the audience, Brian's got two uh, rock and guitars on his wall. Uh, he's got a Sabbath Volume Four shirt uh, for those Sabbath deep cuts. I mean, you know, one of the great bands that had their first four albums, maybe even their first five, were just absolutely phenomenal uh, with Ozzy. 
Uh, and I've got a an Iron Maiden shirt, right? One of my favorite heavy metal bands of all time. Number um, of the Beast. Number of the Beast. And I'm lame here, wearing a sweater here, so I, I'm really disappointed. And I did not know that this was like a, there was a costume that was required for this interview. But thank you for joining us and and for having a little fun. And it's it's been a great chat with you. So thanks, Brian. Thank you. 